Please stand for our call to worship if you are able. And we're going to read Psalm 84 for our call to worship. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul sings, longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, Selah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Let us pray to the Lord. We thank you for all your goodness and, and your call to us to come to you and, and, and raise up your voice and, and hear your word. Please bless all of us as we come before you into your house. Give us wisdom. And bless us with every spiritual blessing. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray this in your Son's name. Let us now turn to uh, Isaiah 53, our first Bible reading of the day. This is Isaiah's great passage concerning the work of the Christ, of the Messiah, who will come and die for the sins of his people. This is on page 613. Let us read the holy, perfect, and always preserved word of the Lord. Isaiah 53. Who has believed what they heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of ground. He has no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised, crushed for our initial iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked 
and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall spoil, divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Mark chapter 8, page 844, is where we left off, and we are, well, we're about halfway through the Gospel of Mark. Last time we were here, uh, we saw the disciples chastised by their Lord for not having eyes to see and to understand the false teaching of the Pharisees and scribes. So, page 844, verses 822 through 830, thus is the reading of the holy, perfect word of the Lord. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him, and he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his village, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village, villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, And you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. We're grateful, Lord, for your word and for causing the blind to see wherever we may be whether it be physical or spiritual, you are the great I am who can bring sight to the blind. Open our eyes to your word in your son's name. Amen. Do you have eyes to see? This is the question which Jesus asked his disciples on the boat when he warned them about the leaven of the Pharisees in the last episode. And Jesus was, was talking about the, the false doctrine and hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And the disciples thought that, that Jesus was worried about a lack of bread. Their spiritual eyes were dull and needed healing. Just as, as the blind man in the next event in the Gospel of Mark, we will, we will see the spiritual blindness of the disciples as well, next to the physical blindness of the blind man, kind of compared and then we'll see Peter healed of his spiritual lack of sight. Yet, 
No one else seems to really know who Jesus is still. It is still a mystery until the Father cures Peter and gives some eyes to see. The people around them are still confused, but now we will see Peter in his shining moment in these Gospels. So in verse 22, Christ heals a blind man. And this is a strange episode. It's a strange miracle and a kind of a strange episode. It's, it's only recorded by Mark. Matthew and John and Luke do not uh, mention this miracle. And, uh, and we'll, we'll see why it's a strange miracle here in and of itself in a minute. But uh, Christ and the twelve, they, they're always on the move. Mark is always showing that they're going from one place to another, sometimes uh, very, very long treks of, of land they travel. And here uh, they're at Bethsaida, which is northeast of the Sea of Galilee. They're still in Gentile territory. And, and we see in verse 22 that they get there, and, and, and seemingly immediately someone brings to Jesus a blind man. And they beg him, Please touch the blind man. Heal the blind man. And, and as soon as they do this, of course, Jesus obliges. He grabs the blind man by the hand and leads him out of town. Which that, that in and of itself would be offensive to, to a lot of faithful Jews of the day, seeing Jesus grab the hand of a Gentile especially a Gentile that was blind. We don't have any reason why he's blind. Maybe it's some horrible disease that makes him unclean or whatever, but this, this would be an offense in and of itself, just Jesus grabbing this blind man by the hand and leading him out of, out of town. But Jesus is the clean one, so he can do this. And he takes the man out of town, and we, we're not sure... The text doesn't tell us why he brings the man out. But he hasn't, we do know that he hasn't done a major miracle amongst the Gentiles, a healing miracle in, their, in any of their cities or anything. So it's very possible that he's just not ready for the Gentiles to see such an event. So he takes the man out of town and... And this is very startling how he heals him. We've seen this previously when he spit on the gentleman's tongue in a previous account. Here, he spits on this gentleman's eyes. It does not get any more physical and, and intimate than what Jesus is doing here. And it just kind of makes you wonder about how we go about things and how we've gone about things the last few years as a recovering germaphobe. This is a startling piece of Scripture that makes me wonder what I'm so afraid of. This is the Lord of all creation. And this is how He chose to heal this man. So I will just leave that there. There are more important things to discuss 
uh, in this passage, but that is an interesting part of this healing event. And so Jesus spits on his eyes, he lays his hands on him, and he, he says, do you see anything? And the man looks up and he, he says, well, yeah, but not clearly. He's, he sees men as if they're trees walking around, blurred. So this is, this is, this is why this is a strange miracle. We haven't seen this in, in any other gospel miracle. When Jesus heals someone, they're healed. Here, he heals the man and he doesn't fully have his sight. What's going on? And, and we're, we're left with the text not really talking about why this is. And so, why is this man? Why, does, why is there this two-stage healing in this great miracle? Well, it's hard to say, but sight is a difficult thing. You know, especially, I've got these things on. Other people have these things on out there. Probably others have contacts in their eyes. And you all are kind of looking blurry now. Sight's a difficult thing and it's, it's not easy to see. And so Jesus puts his hands on the man again and he, he demands that the man look up. And this time the, the man, he, does, he sees clearly, he is healed. And then Jesus tells the man to go home. Don't even go into the town. And not even that, in, in the New King James Version, it says, be quiet, don't tell anybody. So Jesus is is once again commanding someone to be silent after a miracle. And this is, you know, a theme, a motif in the Gospel of Mark where he, he doesn't want people spreading the news of his great power, his great miraculous healings. He doesn't want everyone to know, I suppose, that he's just a, a miracle worker. It's, it's, we just should not speak to dogmatically and assuredly where Scripture doesn't tell us. But, you know, once again, he's telling someone, shh, don't, don't tell anyone. Don't even go into the town. Just go, go to your house. They must have, he must have, Jesus must have known he lived out of town. So they, Jesus has healed this, this blind man the first blind man he's healed in the Gospel of Mark, and, and they're on the move again. They go, he goes with his disciples to the villages of, of Caesarea Philippi. That would be about 25 miles north of Bethsaida where they were. 
And this, this Gentile town of Caesarea Philippi was, was named after the emperor. This is what governors and provincial kings and whatever would do a lot of times. They'd, they'd, get, a, uh, they'd get their authority from, from the Caesar, and so they would name, they'd build a city, and they would name it after Caesar. And this was done by Herod uh, Philippi, so this is Caesarea Philippi. And we also know that this is a place of emperor worship, which only stands to reason because it's named after Caesar in his honor. And this is a, a place where, where you would go if you wanted to truly worship the emperor. And that's an important thing to keep in the back of our heads as we read about Peter's confession of who Jesus is. Because Peter's going to confess that Jesus is the Christ right in the den of the authority of Caesar in this area. So Jesus is walking up to the area of Caesarea Philippi and then he stops and he asks his disciples, Who do people say that I am? What's the word about town? Even more applicable to today probably, uh, the question could be put, Jesus is really asking them, what is the meaning of life? Because that's ultimately what the what we are asking when we ask who do you believe Christ is. That's what he is asking. Christ is life. Who do they say that I am? And the first answer is kind of strange. They say, you're John the Baptist. This is, this is what Herod believed. Remember uh, a few chapters ago, there's the story of, in that uh, uh, Jesus was basically the reincarnated John the Baptist. He had just chopped off John the Baptist's head. And so he, with his guilt-riddled conscience, I suppose, was thinking that, oh my, this is coming back upon me. This is John the Baptist. Which is silly, because John the Baptist and Jesus had been seen together. The old kind of joke we make today, have you ever seen so-and-so and so-and-so together in the same room? Because they might look alike, you know. And Well, Jesus and John the Baptist had been in the same room. John the Baptist baptized Jesus. They are clearly not the same person. Yet, as in all of these comparisons here there's a kernel of truth because like John the Baptist Christ or Jesus boldly proclaimed repent for the kingdom of God is near and like John the Baptist he was no respecter of persons John the Baptist would accuse the Pharisees of sin he would confront Herod about his adultery And and Jesus, likewise, had no issue with 
dealing with the false religious leaders of his day, rejecting them and, and telling everyone about their false doctrine. And even more, John the Baptist was beheaded, right? He was executed. And very well, maybe people thought that, oh, is Jesus going to be executed? Next, we, we see that some people thought he was Elijah. And, well, we're going to read about that in the next chapter. John the Baptist is actually Elijah. Uh, so we'll, we'll talk about that more fully then. But, but Elijah was different than John the Baptist in this. He was a miracle-working prophet. We don't know of any uh, miracle attributed to John the Baptist. There's, there's nothing in the Scriptures. Yet, Elijah was a miracle worker. He prayed for the rain to stop, and it stopped. And then he prayed before the prophets of Baal for the rain to come, and the Lord answered his prayers. He rose a boy from the dead through the power of God. Just like Jesus has risen someone from the dead. And the great miracle of Elijah being taken up from the earth before his death in the chariots of fire. And so maybe that's what people thought would happen with Jesus. Maybe he'd be taken up in a chariot of fire like Elijah. And to be sure, Elijah, it was said, was to Come first before the Christ. He was to make the way straight, to make the road for the Messiah to come down. But Jesus clearly, more than Elijah, and still others, they believe that, well, maybe Jesus is just just a great prophet, one of the prophets, great teacher, who astounded the masses with his authoritative proclamations. And we've read this since the beginning of Mark, that, that he preached with authority that they had never seen anybody preach with. And we, we hear that a lot today, that people think he's just a great teacher. Another, another person, you know, you have Socrates and Plato, Aristotle, Descartes and Jesus. You know, they all had great things to say. And certainly Jesus was an amazing preacher. The amazing preacher. The authoritative Word of God. He was the Word become flesh. And so this, once again, has a kernel of truth. Yet, we see the people are still blind. There's no mention of Jesus being the son of David. No mention of, of the Messiah coming to die for the sins of the people. They were still in the dark. They were still blind. 
And so Jesus looks at the disciples and says, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, The Christ. Now, let's be sure to remember this act of faith by Peter is a gift of God. We read in Matthew's account of this in chapter 16, verse 17. Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. At another time, shortly around this period, shortly thereafter, in John, we read Peter say when Jesus asked him if they're all going to leave, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is glorious. Peter can finally see. He has eyes to see. He understands after all the miracles, after Jesus proclaiming himself to be the Son of Man, after Jesus saying that he has the prerogative, the prerogative that God has to forgive the sins of people. Peter finally has eyes to see given to him by the Father. And he proclaims that he is the Christ. It's taken some time. Eyesight can be difficult physically and spiritually. Sometimes it takes time to see. So what does this term Christ mean? Well, this is a messianic term. In the Old Testament, he was called the Messiah. In the New Testament, it's the Christ. And it's in both, it, it means the Anointed One. And so we, we see in the Old Testament that there were, there were many folks that would get a temporary anointing. You have the oil poured on their head for a commission of one sort or another, whether it be a king, a priest, or a prophet. And this was, this was temporary. But how was Christ anointed? In Mark 1, we read verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John. See, there's John and Jesus together. He was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The anointing of Christ was an eternal, permanent anointing from God the Father himself with the Holy Spirit. Christ is eternally anointed as our prophet, our priest, and our king. 
as our prophet, he is the word become flesh. He proclaimed that he was coming to die for the sins of the people. As our eternal priest, he offered himself on the altar and he was both who came to take away the sins of the world and he was the priest offering himself and who now after being raised from the dead sits at the right hand of the Father performing his priestly office still today praying for us interceding for us to the Father as Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 explains. And He is our eternal King. His kingdom and His judgments are perfect. And he will reign forever and ever in righteousness and truth for all eternity. God has given him all authority in heaven and on earth. And we are his ambassadors. So after this amazing breakthrough moment for Peter, after he confesses the greatest confession anyone can make, Jesus tells them, again, commands them to keep quiet. Don't spread this around. He's not ready, it seems, for, for this truth to be broken out into Israel. I mean, that's the only, the best explanation that we can come up with. What we don't know for sure why he is consigning them to silence after all that's gone on. But we see page nine eighty three in Colossians in your hymnal or Bible, pew Bible. He gives us this word. The mystery hidden from the Gentiles, but now revealed to his saints. This has now been revealed to Peter and the disciples, this great mystery of the gospel that Jesus is the Christ. And it's still to be kept from the rest of the world at this time, according to Christ. So, Jesus is bringing light out of darkness. He is bringing sight to the blind. And yet, the question must be asked as we seek to apply this. How are we blind to Jesus' 
true identity? Do we treat Jesus like he's just a, a pious and, and fiery social justice preacher as, as many saw in John the Baptist and as that's a prevalent teaching in, in much of, of Christendom today. It's all about social justice. Do we see him just as a, a miracle worker and presume upon Jesus for his healing power as many churches do today? Or was he just a great teacher? As the world likes to say. He taught some great things. The golden rule. Well, most importantly, who do you say Jesus is? Well, He is a fiery preacher concerned with justice. That is true. He is the resurrected Son of Man, the greatest miracle worker ever, and the one from whom all miracles come. And He is the great teacher who spoke of our need to turn from our sin and trust in Him and Him alone for our salvation. These are the things that we need to understand. Christ is our eternal prophet, priest, and king. So, saints of God, brothers and sisters, to whom will you proclaim Christ. We're not sworn to secrecy anymore. We can proclaim Him boldly and concluding only Christ can bring eyesight to the blind. He causes both the, the physically and spiritually blind to see. And as great as Christ is and even as obvious as it may seem that He is the great God and Savior. It is still a miraculous event of the Holy Spirit to clear the scale from our eyes and, and turn us to Him. It was Peter's greatest moment when he proclaimed that Jesus was the Christ. And still today, it is our finest hour when we proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for enlightening us through your word, through the working of your spirit through which nothing makes sense without Your Spirit working in us and giving us wisdom and helping us to see Christ for who He is. Guide us into an ever-increasing knowledge of Christ that our minds would be continually transformed into Christ's likeness and that we would love Your Word and that we would cling to Christ in all things wherever we might be. We pray that you would bless our church. In the power of the Holy Spirit, according to your Son's name.
Amen.